Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, coming to you from Bushwick, New York, in the shipping container at Roberta's. And uh, I'm just extremely excited today because we have uh, the entire, well, not the entire Mandavi family, but three members of the Mandavi family here. Um, as, uh, as I'm sure you guys know, Mandavis are just absolute icons in uh, American wine, um, just as have spread the, the word about what great quality California wine can be like, and has, has really, I think, done quite, quite a bit for, uh, for the world. I really can't sum it all, uh, sum it all up in just a, a short little quip, but uh, welcome, uh, welcome Mandavis. We have uh, Michael Mandavi here, uh, sitting to my right. Um, and then his uh, two kids, uh, Robert Mandavi Jr. and Dina Mandavi. So welcome, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank <laughs> you. Um, and then uh, I'm looking at, uh, at a lineup of wines. Uh, maybe you can tell me a little bit about what you have going on in front of us. Well, we'll start with the Isabel Mandavi Chardonnay. It is from Carneris. Rob is the interpreter winemaker he interprets interprets his mother's tastes and then makes wine to please her so why don't we let rob tell you about the wine yeah so uh we've got here pretty remarkable chardonnay that we're uh jumping in on and uh, what i'm really liking about the chardonnay is that that isabel mama didn't uh didn't want really what was just standard out in the marketplace which is really the genesis of wanting to create her own wine so what we've done is we've found a way to compact a good little bit of oak in there where it's not overbearing and this round, lovely butteriness without it being heavy. So what I'd love to ask you to do is just go ahead and grab that bottle, the Isabel Mondavi Chardonnay, and pour some of that. That's our 2012 vintage. And i got to tell you what, this is, uh, this is what I call banging Chardonnay. It's perfect, bright, good acidity, a little bit of oak in there. So why don't I let you check that out and you tell me what you're thinking. Okay, I mean, the first thing I'm thinking is that, uh, you know, when we opened up our first restaurant, I worked with my mom uh, a, a little bit and uh, she answered the phones and man, she would tell me when, you know, when someone had two cups of coffee instead of one in the morning, she would tell me if something was out of place from the night before. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm just thinking about what are, what are some of the challenges working so closely uh, with your family and then maybe also what are some of the... Uh, and, and, you know, and, and some of the things were, were really appreciated that she would say, and then some of the things were like, Mom, come on, I need to, like, get some work done, and it's not that important. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I think the, the, the toughest challenge at first was that she was, she was very, very kind in the first few years because we made the Chardonnay for her. And, and she would say, yes, I like this blend. And then next year we'd come up to harvest, and we'd ask her how it was, and she said, well, I kind of want to tinker with this a little bit. So... I think that, that for our experience, that, that mom was not specific enough to get what she wanted the first couple of years. And then we, uh, we've, we, we changed the fermentation methodology up just a little bit um, to do something a little avant-garde in the cellar. 
And then, and then at that moment, she really fell in love with the one. So I think the challenge, like you asked, what was the rub, was that she was worried about hurting feelings, and we wanted to make sure it was right for us. So I think maybe a little different, but also a good challenge. Okay, so we have a pretty sophisticated group of listeners here. So if, if you tell us a little bit more about when you changed uh, you want the some trade secrets. Yeah, yeah. What, what happened okay. when you changed the fermentation well, techniques? <laughs> let's get down and dirty then. So uh, we've got first and secondary fermentation, your primary and your secondary. So the first is the, uh, the yeast converting uh, the sugars into alcohol. The secondary is malic or malolactic fermentation. That's what gets all, you know, Chardonnay, creamy, buttery fat. So we put those two together. And what that did is when we do them at the same time is it stops the duration of time for malolactic fermentation. Normally it takes a few months. This we're compacting in and do it in like a week. So you notice the Chardonnay has a little bit of creaminess and it's also crisp at the same time. It's kind of like a push-pull thing going Mm-hmm. That's how we really push that in together. That push pull, I think of as balance. It's usually yeah. when I hear the word balance, I think that yeah, you have the acidity, but you also have some richness, and they're they're balancing each other out. So I imagine you do that by doing everything in stainless steel temperature control and controlling everything as much as possible. Or how does that happen? Yeah, you know, it happens a little bit like a runaway, unbridled horse that you're just grabbing mane and trying to hang on to. So my uh, my good mentor Tony Coltrane came up with uh, this this fermentation strategy and put this into play because we just needed to fine-tune this a little bit. I would have never came up with that fermentation methodology. He nailed it. But it is, it's all in barrel, beautiful little small French oak barrels for the Isabel Mondavi Chardonnay. And, and what we're doing is the f- primary and secondary going off at the same time in those small French oak barrels. And I think that's what makes the Isabel Mondavi Chardonnay unique and different. Now, Michael, I'm going to turn to you. You've seen, uh, and, and I should also say, I, I'm really enjoying this. I've had quite a few sips now, uh, and, and truly, uh, it, it is balanced, and it, you're not just saying that. But now you've seen California Chardonnay go through some ebbs and flows over the years. Um, how, how, what do you, how do you feel like this fits into the spectrum of California Chardonnay, and, and what do you see as the future? Well, first of all, the original Chardonnays that were made were really made in either large redwood or... Uh, concrete tanks. They weren't made in stainless steel or, or in oak barrels. And then in the late 60s, 70s, we started getting into, into oak. And like anything, at first, we went too much. And a lot of the California Chardonnays had far too much oak. They weren't balanced. They were too buttery, too rich, too heavy. And they literally fought food at that time. I think now we've come back to where balance is extremely important. You want the flavor of the grape. You want a kiss of the oak, you want it interesting, but you want it to complement the enjoyment of food, not overpower it. And why do you feel it's important to taste that kiss of the oak? Do you think that it's something that people have just so come to expect from Chardonnay that that it has to be there or they're not going to like it? I think it's different than that. I think it's like in cooking with a chef using certain herbs or spices or salt or pepper. Um, It will add to the flavor of the dish. If you use too much, it overpowers it. I think for maybe 20 years, we in California were using too much oak. We're now learning how to ratchet it down, get beautiful balance, beautiful finish in the wine, so it invites you to have a second or third glass. Yeah, I I, I was thinking about it as uh, 
salt with cooking. I know Dina and Robert Jr. big are big uh, cooks. Um, your, your father was telling me. He's telling me some other embarrassing stories as well. <laughs> um, but I think about it as salt. Uh, you know, most dishes, if, if the salt's not there, you, you definitely know it. And if there's too much salt, you know it. But if it's if it's in the right balance, it's just enhancing all the flavors. So when you, you have the right balance of oak, then it just brings everything uh, brings everything together. Um, Dean, I want to ask you: are, are these what are the kinds of wines that you find yourself uh, uh, drinking? Oh, that's a hard question to answer. It's uh, we're actually I'm in love with so many different types of wine. It's more about what am I eating at that moment? What kind of wine goes best with that? And Usually what I do is I just go downstairs to my garage and pull a bottle and, and enjoy it with my dinner. I, um, I don't know. I'm a big Cabernet fan. I love Napa Valley Cabernets. I'm really proud of what my father has done with his M Cabernet of Napa Valley. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to trying that in a, in a little bit. But I want to go back to this idea of, uh, of uh, cooking and, uh, and wine pairing. Um, for uh, Robert Jr., your, your dad was just telling me a story uh, uh, about... A uh, special guest that you had over for uh, for dinner when you were a child. Yeah, the uh, remarkable story. So, Dad comes home uh, you know, on Thursday night and and tells my mom that uh, there's a chef who's going to be joining us for lunch on Saturday, and this particular chef was Julia Child and her husband. So you've you've got. Dad delivering the news, and I'm what maybe ten, so that made it you know it's cool. I've seen her cooking show, I'm like wow, you know she's coming over. But uh, my mom's a little panicked, right? You know, you'd be panicked, right? It was yes. Like, you yeah. know, <laughs> George LeBlanc, Paul Bocuse, you know, Bourdain's coming over to your house for dinner. I mean, that's pretty much what's happening. So, so, uh, so, so, you know, my dad likes to say that he was a celibate priest for a while after you know springing that you know forty eight hour notice on that uh, that Julia Child's coming over for lunch, but. But yeah, absolutely. You know, she comes over for lunch, and my my mom serves burgers, burgers and a great potato salad, and little you know, a little butter lettuce, little gems, and uh, and Julia loved it because sometimes wine and food, it doesn't have to be ornate to be spectacular. And and Julia Child really, of anybody who appreciated wine and food together, truly she did, and she I think helped to pioneer that for us here in the United States to try to to cook things and to try to enjoy and the message that uh, that my family took away from that was you know let's sit down let's break bread together do something simple and enjoy the wine the food and the company because right then you know you had the master chef of all chefs at the time and in my family you know no help to me i'm 10 years old right who uh was one of the most renowned winemaking families so to be able to relax a little bit and to just have a great burger and simple potato salad was a way to enjoy company together with the Mon- Robert Mondavi family and Julia Child. Right, and some, sometimes you, if you try too hard, you just mess it up. There's no way that you're going to make a fancy dish that Julia can't do a little yeah, bit really. better, at it's least. like bringing sand to the beach, you know? Jeez, yeah, that, so. that's what a, what a crazy story. So uh, so I keep going back to the Chardonnay. I am I'm, I'm enjoying it. Tell us a little bit about where this is from and, and Carnero. So he's really spoke quite a bit about the the winemaking techniques, some of the barrel aging, fermentation at the same time. But what what's unique about this uh, this climate? Well, yeah, you're you're talking really about where's the genesis of the wine. So you're talking about the vineyard sourcing right now, and the vineyard that we're using is coming pr- uh, from the estate. So this new winery of ours, which we purchased in 2006, the Ro- the Michael Mondavi family estate, we call it now. Um, the Isabel Mondavi Chardonnay has about 
just under half of the grape sourcing right on the property. Uh, that allows us right by the, the, the winery to, to harvest these grapes and within a few feet bring them right into the cellar and to start the, uh, the crush and the fermentation. And then the other part is uh, for the foodies who've been over into Sonoma County, uh, right nestled up next to Napa Valley, is the Fremont Diner. And just a, just a couple, uh, about a quarter mile away from the Fremont Diner, is our second vineyard source on this, which is a beautiful hillside vineyard to Chardonnay. So that's nice and crisp. You asked a question, though. You asked, well, why is the climate different there? So we have this, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, everybody knows, and everyone knows San Francisco fog, and, you know, and Samuel Clemens' lovely quote, the, the coldest summer I ever spent was a, no, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. So why is that? It's because the Pacific Ocean's right there. Our water temperatures are about 52 degrees. So in comes this cold blast of air. Uh, right through the San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, and up San Pablo Bay into Napa. And there we are. We're in Carneros. We're like five miles away from the water. So you ask, why is the climate different there? Why is it good for Chardonnay? It's because it's cold and it's fresh and it's vibrant. So when you taste these wines and there's this beautiful, the Isabel Mondavi Chardonnay is showing the beautiful white peach and, and uh, you know, just uh, tart nectarine. That's why we're getting it is because of exactly where we are. And do you get a lot of fog influence in the morning? Does that happen and then it blows off? My God, you're soaked in the morning. Yeah. Literally, the fog is so dense there in the mornings that, that uh, you can turn your windshield wipers on when you're driving in or, you know, you get a little dew on your jacket as you're walking the vineyards in the morning, tasting the grapes for the Isabel Mondavi Chardonnay. It's a, it's a really great way to do it. You know, talk about moisturizing. <laughs> wow, that's that is uh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, well, I, I am I'm tasting again, and that the oak is definitely there. Um, but again, it it it's it, it's a, this like just slight butteriness in the back, a little toastiness, but uh, definitely uh, a very again just a really balanced wine. I, I'm enjoying that quite a bit. Um, let's move on to uh, let's move on to another one. I'm excited to try something else. So. I think you're moving into the uh, the emblem, Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Is uh, yeah, that's exactly what Dad's pouring right there. Beautiful, just dark, inky. It's like this India ink color. It's just you you see this in the glass, and you know that there's going to be something just textured and rich there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what what is the total production of all of your wines at this point? Total production of of these wines is. Is I love to, to use some great analogies. Is less than that of like an Arrowwood, which is a small boutique winery. Um, substantially less than that of Opus One. So you know we're talking really small lot productions. And you know, as as uh, the folks uh, tuning in on this uh, and uh, should know that with the Isabel Mondavi and the Michael Mondavi family estate wines, we have three different brands, if you will, three different marks. The Isabel Mondavi Chardonnay, because my mom has a different style and signature, and then Emblem, which is more of a reflection of my sister and I, and then my father has M. But but all together, they're, they're just this teeny little production of wine. And we have a signature that we each like and different styles of wine we like, so we try to keep it very succinct like that. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about that, going from uh, working in very, very large scale uh, to something that's a little bit more small scale and boutique. Well, it, it was really kind of full circle because when we started in 1966 with my father, myself, and one other person, only three employees, if you wanted anything done, you had to do it yourself. And we then grew over the years to a very large winery at Robert Mondavi. And when we then reinvented ourselves 
in 19, or excuse me, in 2004 and created um, our new wines, it was like back to the future. It was neat because I could spend time in the vineyards, I could spend time in the cellars, and mainly I could spend time with my son and daughter doing what I love best, and that is making the wines and being involved in the actual winemaking. When you get a large company, all of a sudden you're involved in managing a lot of people, working with accountants, attorneys, and that was not my cup of tea. And it's really fun and wonderful to get back to the foundation, get back to the source, to the vineyards, and to the wines and the family. You know, it's really interesting. So, so Dad, so Mike Mondavi was the, the winemaker over at Robert Mondavi Winery from 66 to 74. And, and that's a pretty remarkable time in the wine industry, a time especially in California of discovery, of experimentation. Um, so, you know, really, you know, it's, it's not ever really talked a lot about because, in, uh, because it just, our company shifted in 74 when he went to go and uh, head up the sales and marketing side. But what I love is that the, I, I really look at him as the unsung hero of the winemaking back then because he was involved with the wines that put not only the Robert Mondavi winery on the map, but Napa Valley on the map. So to me, that's a great little unsung story of, that, uh, of where his involvement was with the handling and the ferments of the wine back then. Absolutely. And now, the story that, that people are telling here in New York, and I, I really do want to hear your opinion if you think this is an accurate story or, uh, or if, it's, you know, if, if, it's, if it's inaccurate in any way, is that uh, in California now, people are moving back towards the way they were made at that time in the, in the early 70s, mid-70s, where you have smaller estates who are making more balanced wines, who are not manipulating the wines as much as, as they were. Um, do you feel that that is, that is an accurate assessment, or is that just a, fo- a, a handful of small wineries that, that people here in New York are getting excited about? No, I think that that's very accurate in the fact that in the 60s, as we were starting to understand how to make great wines in Napa and California, um, as we grew, we then got more mass production, more scientific, more technological. And during that process, when we learned enough about the science and technology, we then went back to the soil and the climate. You make the wine in the vineyard. It's the flavor of grape that gives you the flavor in the wine. So we went from winemaking in the 70s and 80s back to wine growing now. And you need to be involved with each vineyard. They say the best fertilizer for a vineyard are the shoes of the owner of the winery. And if you walk through your vineyard, if you live in your vineyard, you can make great wines. Yeah, I mean, I believe that that as well, uh, you know, in terms of restaurants, because I work in restaurants, and I think that the best kind of management is walking around, is mm-hmm. being around, being there and, and talking to people, as opposed to, you know, telling people what to do or, or sending things out. As long if you're there, if you're present, then, then people are going to act in a different way. Memos and directives don't make great wine or great yeah. food. So what, what, that's actually, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and that's kind of leading into something that I was thinking about. Like what, what are some things that you have learned from your, your time at a large scale winery that you think uh, would be applicable to a smaller boutique firm? Well, first of all, in today's world, we have the, whether it's the internet or other technology that helps us as a small winery to be technologically right up to speed with the large companies. Uh, You don't have to be a large winery 
to understand the science of winemaking, uh, to have the laboratory equipment to run the proper proactive analysis. Just like with a, a human, you give the human a physical, and you can say, gee, from the blood analysis, you're a little high in cholesterol, therefore you better change your diet. We can really predict the health of the wines through that science. Then it all comes to the smell, the taste, the sanitation, and the care you take with the barrels in the cellar. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to talk a little bit about the care you take with this emblem because I've been enjoying it. And also, I'm going to want to talk to Dina a little bit about what it's like to grow up in a winemaking family. It's always been a dream of mine to be born into a great Barolo family, but that, clearly that didn't happen. So we're going to take a quick... Uh, Barolo, how about a Napa Valley family? I'm sitting right here with I'll you. take that as well. Uh, and then, But we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You're listening to Inventory by Tom Cruise on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. And we're back on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm here with Michael, uh, Dina, and Robert Mondavi Jr. And uh, we all have in our glasses the Michael Mondavi Family Winery Emblem Cabernet Sauvignon Napa Valley 2010. Um, and uh, I'm enjoying it quite a bit, actually. Um, I, so when you started the uh, Michael Mondavi Winery and went out to make another Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon there are so many out there. What did you think you had to add to the conversation? Well, first of all, we started with the emblem single vineyard hillside called Oso Vineyard uh, because we wanted to have a foundation. Nobody needs another Cabernet. What you need is another Cabernet that's going to wow you. And you go, wow, that is really something. Um, we started that <clears throat> five years ago. The emblem 2010 uh, Napa Valley, this is the premier vintage. And Rob and Dina wanted to create something that was a combination of the hillside with the valley floor, and I'll let the two of them describe the style of the wines. Well, <clears throat> the emblem is quite a fun wine for Rob and I to make. It's a 
coming off of quite a couple of vineyards of ours, and it's showing a new expression that Rob and I really enjoy. It's, a, I think, a fruit forward. It's a really friendly wine. I have trouble um, pacing myself with this wine. I like it so much. It's pretty new for us, but um, it's been opened a few times at home already. So so this is why your husband, Darren, keeps asking me for more wine, for yeah. more of the emblem <laughs> map of that. I get it now. Yeah. Well, I'm enjoying it very much. Uh, it it is not. Uh, it certainly has uh, Napa Valley ripeness, but without being overripe, which is uh, some one thing that I uh, sometimes don't like about Napa Valley wines. Uh, overripe is a very good word, and I agree with you completely on not liking it. The wine becomes more port-like and heavy. Wine is supposed to cleanse the palate, excite the taste buds, and invite you to have another bite of your food or another sip of the wine. And with that, you need beautifully balanced flavor and a nice finish, not an overpowering heavy wine. And I think that Rob and Dina have come up with a great blend of this, and it's not 100% Cabernet. In fact, Rob has this love affair with Syrah, and he has brought Syrah and Petite Syrah into the blend to really add complexity to it. Okay. Tell us a little bit about uh, Petite Syrah in the blend, because that, that's a grape that I think a lot of us are not as familiar with. Yeah. Petite Syrah is, is pretty remarkable. So, yeah, you know, I, I affectionately refer to uh, Cabernet Sauvignon as my desert island wine. Taking it there, not even a question. That That's my end-all, be-all wine. But this damn Petite Syrah is, is like these, these sirens that are just calling to me. You know, tie me to the mast so I don't get, don't get off course kind of thing. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's remarkable. So Petite Syrah, you know, you said you got some wine guys and gals listening, so I'm going to go with it. So Petite Syrah is, uh, a, is a hybrid, if you will, of Pelisserin, and it was crossed with Syrah uh, by a guy named Darif. And so the, the, wine over in, the grape over in Europe is called Darif. We call it Petite Syrah for whatever reason over here. And it's it's dark, it's inky, it's brooding, it's uh, a little angry during fermentation, but uh, but after it's tamed, it it becomes this beautiful violet aromatics and and blueberries uh, in the palate. For a blender, Petite Syrah is exceptional because it adds backbone and body. It adds these boysenberry uh, fruit profiles to the wine, which are familiar, right? These these characteristics are familiar for all of uh, the people who love wine. But they're just a little bit different to where you're putting your nose in the glass and saying, my God, it's Cabernet, but there's a little something uh, you know, outside the box here. And that's what I love about this. I didn't want to make another Cabernet Sauvignon. Great. There's, there's Cabernet Sauvignons out there. I wanted to make a modern interpretation of this where we're using a little bit of Petite Syrah, a little bit of Petite Verdot. Uh, we have actually a little uh, Zin, a little Old Vine Zin. So it's it's just this beautiful blend to coax out different flavors. So it's familiar familiar and a little bit alluring because you just aren't sure what's going on. Well, uh, just to go through the uh, how you conceptualize a wine like that and what are some of the decisions that, that you make when coming through the blend, um, was the Petite Syrah something that, that had already been existing and, and you knew about a block of it and then purchased it to add to the blend? Or is that something that you'd planted intentionally because you said, I want this flavor in this wine? I, I planted it um, over at our Oso Ranch because I, I love it. 
you know, that was kind of hard stop right there. I planted Petite Syrah because I love it. I uh, wanted to make a single vineyard wine out of it, which we did. And then when the family got together and we were talking about the creation of the emblem Napa Valley, which we're tasting here right now, we said we need to do something different. We need to have a signature to this wine. It can't just be another Napa Valley Cabernet. So when we made the emblem Napa Valley, we decided that we wanted to blend in a little bit of this Petite Syrah to really increase the sex appeal, a little bit of the spiciness and the edginess of the wine. All right, and turning over to Dina, I don't know if you had a chance to think about my question before. So it's like I said, it's always been this like crazy fantasy of mine that obviously it's never going to happen. That I was born into a family that uh, that makes uh, great wines that lives in wine country. Um, is that is is that always a dream? Is there sometimes uh, is it sometimes a nightmare? Or is it, how do you feel about about this? Um, girl, <clears throat> excuse me. Growing up, Mondavi was. Uh well, my only life I've had, so I have nothing to compare it to. But there were a lot of great perks. You know, I I was at the launch of uh, Luce in 97 in, in Italy, and I met Gianni Versace. You know, the I think the downside about working in a family business is when you call in sick, everyone calls you and wants to bring you soup when you just wanted a day off. So uh, <laughs> you really don't get the, the call in sick uh, like you do at other companies. But uh, it's been such a blessing to be part of this family. My favorite thing to do is to come to work and to blend with my brother and my father. It's the best thing in the world it's did you know you were going to be in wine the whole time was it was there ever an option if you said there was always an option i think one of my first memories is you know you don't have to work for the family we want you to do what you want to do and um in fact it was um important for my brother and i to work outside of the family before we came to the family that was the one condition to work for the family is we had to work outside okay and that, that gave you a basis and said all right if i found something else i love so for some reason, the beautiful rolling hills in Napa Valley drew you back. I can't imagine um, why. Not yeah. quite, actually. I'm the only Mondavi living outside of Napa. Okay. <laughs> Where do you live? Uh, I live in San Francisco. I love it. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So now we have in, uh, in our glass uh, a new wine, uh, a little bit deeper in color, a little bit darker. What, what did you pour for us here? This is the uh, M by Michael Mondavi. And this is um, a... It's really my flagship. Uh, I found the l- land for this uh, in the mid-90s, planted the late 90s, and it's in a hillside up at around 1,200 feet elevation in Atlas Peak. Not much soil, just volcanic rock. What I'd learned over the last 40 years in the wine business was that the greatest wines from Napa are going to come from the hillsides. The valley floor has beautiful Cabernets, but the greatest wines are going to be hillside with the structure and the, the smaller berries, richer flavor. Um, this wine is 100% Cabernet, 100% from our Animo Vineyard. And Animo, Dina, why don't you tell us about Animo? Where'd the name come from? Um, this was after my second year of Italian in a university, and I learned the word Animo. It means soul or spirit in Italian. And being an Italian family and not very uh, French, I decided to use animo as our word for terroir. So it's kind of the, the total spirit and uh, sense of place. So this is the animo vineyard. When you come to this vineyard, it's probably one of the most beautiful vineyards I've ever seen. It's uh, gorgeous, beautiful hills. We have a uh, canyon right in front of us. And Rob tells the story of, you know, you take a stone and you throw it off the side. You won't hear that stone hit either the side or the bottom of the canyon for a good three to five seconds so this is quite an amazing place we have great winds that come up every afternoon Um, rob and my dad have made this vineyard such an incredible vineyard they've worked on it in terms of uh, soil leafing uh, exposure everything and so it's a it's quite a great vineyard i love it the key is 
the grapes are the flavor of the wine. You don't make the wine in the cellar. So we have the pleasure of Rob, Tony Coltrane, a winemaker I've had the luxury of working with for 36 years as well, and myself walking the vineyard, tasting the grapes, and we determine through flavor of the grapes in the vineyard when to harvest. Not just sugar and acid and pH and analytics. It's 100% the flavor in the mouth that morning. Yeah, judging from the color, I would I would guess uh, even more fruit, even more ripe. Uh, there certainly is more concentration, but in this one, um, as opposed to the emblem, I notice uh, more floral notes and more of a rockiness to it. Um, and and then yes, certainly a concentration of fruit. So uh, that that is uh, that's really pretty. <laughs> so uh, congratulations on that one. It's Thank very, you. Yeah, it's more of a classic. Um, global type wine like a Bordeaux whereas the emblem is more of the California style the more avant-garde mm-hmm. you know you look you look at this this wine in the glass the M by Michael Mondavi and this is the 1999 vintage that we're drinking right now and uh, and, and I, I hate correcting dad the only the only thing I'll say on this is that there's actually four percent Petit Verdot in this blend and and the uh, the the petite verdot adds a little bit of the floral um, attribute and a little bit of the femininity to the aromatics of the wine. It's really pretty. Uh, you can just put a little drop behind your ears. It's like a you know great perfume. It's just beautiful. So this wine, the importance of this is is worth noting. So of all the vineyards that that Michael's seen in his life, he bought one vineyard for his personal enjoyment, and that was this vineyard in the nineties. He's made one wine that has his name and his name only as a representation of the wine. That is this wine. So think about this guy who pioneered the California wine industry, uh, who helped put Napa Valley on the map, who then finds the one vineyard in Napa or around the world that he thinks is remarkable, and then he creates that one wine from it. The the intensity of this wine, the, the amount of detail that we put into this wine is unlike any other. It really is. It's, it's like finding that time in life when you have the jumping off point to, to create your masterpiece. And this, this 2009 M by Michael Mondavi is something that's just absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, it, it, it is truly, truly a beautiful wine. Um, and, that, and I think classic in, in the way that, uh, that I would hope and imagine other classic Napa Valley Cabernets to be. Um, but uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap things up. I feel like I could ask you guys questions for uh, for another half hour or, or hours. Uh, so I might just have to come knock on your door. Roll tape segment two. <laughs> uh, I wish we could do the John Stewart. Do you have some time? We can put this up on the web. But uh, uh, unfortunately, we can't do that. But uh, thank you so much uh, for stopping by. Uh, I know this isn't Napa Valley out in Bushwick, but uh, we enjoy having you here nonetheless. Well, come and visit us in Napa, and we'll record in the vineyard. Sounds great. Uh, and thanks to all of you to listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.